Our conversation today is with Dr. Nina Lum. Nina is a certified family doctor, a hospitalist and chief quality officer. She currently works at the CHI St. Joseph, a community hospital in London, Kentucky. Can you tell me the university where you graduated from? University of St. Eustatius, School of Medicine, Netherlands, Antilles, in the Caribbean. And uh, she was the resident graduate at the University of uh, Kentucky Rural Track, St. Clair Family Medicine, where she graduated in 2015. Dr. Lum is also co-author of the best-selling medical anthology book, The Chronicles of Women in White Coat, and a blogger on the encouragingdoctor.com. She writes and coaches international medical students and graduates on success blueprints for their unique pathways. She is the creator of the online course coaching platform for IMG. IMG stands for International Medical Students and Graduates. And the platform is called the IMGRoadmap.com. Dr. Lom is the visionary and a co-leader of the new book, Beyond Challenge. She will be launching the book in Washington, D.C. in October this year. And then uh, this book features 15 Cameroonian female physicians who peel back the curtain to share survival stories as immigrants in America. The stories fall under the categories of life, love, and medicine on Amazon uh, and uh, Kindle. Dr. Lum is also an avid medical missionary and has worked uh, with team in Haiti and Cameroon. She loves photography, entrepreneurship, travel, blogging, and reading on self-improvement. She's the health and wellness speaker and newspaper columnist for the Sentinel Echo. Welcome, Nina. Thank you so much for having me, Hari. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you have like an what you're doing for the world. Oh, thank you. You have an impressive background. I hope I was able to clearly state exactly what you do. <laughs> I think you did a great job with it. Thank you. All right, thank you. So uh, tell me, where do you find the time to do all of this? I still ask myself the same question. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that. I ask myself, really, where am I going to get the time to do all this? But a lot of times you just have to, you start and then you just you just figure out how you're going to finish. Mm -hmm. You know, I just usually start and some one way or the other I finish. Right. So you grew up in Cameroon, Douala, and you moved to That's, the U.S. Was that after high school? No, actually, I grew up in Cameroon, just like you mentioned, uh, born and raised in Douala. I went to boarding school in Limbe. Mm -hmm. And after seven, seven years at a boarding school called Seca Baptist College in Limbe, and after that, I started off at the University of Boya in the Department of Life Sciences, right. studying microbiology. And then midway into that, well, it wasn't even up to midway, probably within the first year, I determined that I could no longer continue there. I wanted to pursue my lifelong long dream of medicine. So mm -hmm. I went from Cameroon to the Caribbean before coming to the States. Okay. So, and when was that? This was in 2000. And five, okay, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. I think it was right around there when right. I moved to the Caribbean. Yeah, so how was it like growing up in Cameroon? Well, it's a very unique experience, especially after living here for 11 years now. Mm -hmm. You just tend to realize how unique it is. Not bad, it's not a good or bad type of uniqueness, it's a 
it's a uniqueness that's very special because you know it it holds your identity and who you grew up to be but it's very different from you know being in the states now um mm-hmm. as well growing up at home was i mean it was fun you know being a little girl no cares in the world very thankful for everything that we had grew up in a what i would call a uh, middle class family mm-hmm. um and uh well taken care of had everything that we needed because just as a child you're not exposed to what the world has to offer until you grow older and you realize that there's a lot more outside of what you've known mm-hmm. but it was a very peaceful childhood I think we had a pretty good life i would say okay and then uh, while in high school did you do anything else apart from school in high school so i went to boarding school so that meant we spent over 9 months of the year in school mhm So really you only got to spend about, you know, 3 months with your family, 3 maybe 3 4 months, you know, over that would be over like Easter break, summer break, and then we had one other break sometime in the spring. And what we'll refer to as spring here at least. So, you know, when you spend a lot of time in boarding school, the only extracurriculars that you do are those that are that you're a part of in school. So I really didn't have to do anything outside of that. Right. You know, when we were out of school, my mom always made sure that we attended some type of English school, a computer school, or got into one extracurricular activity or the other, mm-hmm. or just go spend time with grandparents up in Bamenda, but and Bamenda is in the northwest region of the country for those who don't know. So, we didn't really do a whole lot outside of school cuz school was a handful. I mean, school was life. <laughs> you know, having to live in the confines of a boarding institution for so long right kind of got into the uh routine of whatever the school wanted you to do kind of was it challenging um back then i didn't perceive it as challenging for those of us that went to boarding schools in in that part of the country at that time mm-hmm. it was actually a privilege to be able to be a part of that because in the community it was almost as if you know if you wanted a quality education for your child you had to put some money and send them to a mission school mm-hmm. and all those mission schools were primarily boarding school right right so being away from home wasn't much of an issue it was actually something that we looked forward to even as young children it's actually funny because when you move to the west and you realize just the way the different ways in which you know children are raised and the perception of being away from school for that long mm-hmm. and being technically raised you know maybe by an institution or with an institution and uh not as much time with your parents it's frowned upon here but for us that was the best that we could have and we were so excited to do it i was it was very very joyful season actually right you know it was fun times we had we had good times in school and made lifelong friends lots of stories that we still talk about till date mhm So I really I really don't think that was the most challenging thing that could happen. But now if we took a kid from here and put them in that school, they're probably going to like run after the first day. <laughs> sure. Because the conditions are different, you know, the food is bad, <laughs> right. tastes awful. But we just figured out ways to make it work. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's yeah. interesting. We interviewed uh, one of our guests, uh, Elizabeth Hassan. She was in boarding school in Nigeria. And she was telling us how in the boarding school you needed to have some sort of alliances if you wanted to to be seen as powerful or to have some sort of privileges because it could be like a prison sometimes yeah you sort of have to have a girl clique well my school was primarily 
all girls. It's a, you know, it wasn't a co-ed type institution. So mm -hmm. there are all these like, you know, cliques and factions. You needed to have a group that you could identify with. Right. Really. That's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, after your, after high school and a half year at the university of Midway, you moved to the Caribbean. Why, why the Caribbean? So, you know, it wasn't my first choice. Actually, while I was in high school, I wanted to go to medical school right out of high school. I mean, as you know, in Cameroon, when you pursue medicine, it's something you go right into right after high school mm -hmm. um, because it's a, seven, a six to seven year curriculum right. that covers your undergrad and your medical education. So I tried to get in. At, at the time, it was the only medical school, and now there's tons of other new ones that have been developed since I left. But there was just one at, at the time. It was called Cuse. I think that was uh, CSU Centre something. I forget what yeah, it is. Yeah, Centre Hospitalier. Univers University or something like that. Yes. So, you know, I tried applying into that, took the exams, and um, never made the list. And mm -hmm. so... That's that was sort of my first reroute into the University of Boya. Right. And while there, I mean, I enjoyed school quite all right, but I just knew I didn't want to graduate as a microbiologist. That mm -hmm. was more of a plan B. Right. And so I found I started looking at schools all over the world. Really, I looked at um, Europe. I looked at uh, the states. I looked at Nigeria. Even I looked at South Africa. Mm -hmm. In Europe, I specifically looked at. Uh, the Netherlands, I looked at France, I looked at Britain. I just looked at a lot of different options, you know, sort of like what would get me to that MD goal. I actually looked at Ghana as well. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of that, then I stumbled upon pre-medicine in the Caribbean. It seemed appealing to me at the time because I could transfer my credits from my microbiology program into their pre-med program. So after communicating with them and learning about them, I think one of the drawing factors was the president of the Student Government Association at the time mm -hmm. was was a person from Cameroon. Right. So the minute I started my application process, they connected me with that student who was already a part of their medical school mm -hmm. and was there from Sweden. And so in talking with him, I felt very comfortable because it was probably the only school that I had. There was someone in the school that I was applying to that was from Cameroon and could help me figure things out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say that facilitated the process. Right. And I continued along that pursuit and moved from Boya to the Caribbean, started off pre-medicine there. Okay. And then upon completing pre-medicine, started with their medical school track as well. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my segue into the U.S., coming in as a medical student to participate in clinical rotations. Okay. Okay. So uh, that was a strategic choice then. I, I wouldn't say so. I had no, it was not, honestly, I had no intention of coming to the States when I went to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. The first day I got to the island, it was not in my big strategic plan to move to America. Right. I think everything just happened in a divinely orchestrated way. I, I am very full of faith. Mm -hmm. And so I know that it, it just happened the way it was supposed to happen. Right. Um, in an almost definitely 100% a God ordained manner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without having a plan to come to the States for residency, it ended up unfolding that that was sort of the ultimate way to go. That only became apparent to me, again, under the guidance of 
you know, the student I mentioned and other students in the school mm-hmm. um, and sort of what the majority was, was pursuing. Right. So uh, after your degree in the Caribbean, did it facilitate you becoming a doctor in the U.S.? Not necessarily. You know, you could be a physician any, from any country mm-hmm. and you present yourself to the U.S. and it's just not an easy, straightforward path to start practicing here. So every physician that comes from outside has to go through the process of taking the board exams and has to pass them and pass them competitively well. And then they have to be trained by a U.S. institution in order to practice here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be the best doctor from the Caribbean or from anywhere in the world. But the minute you come into the States and you want to practice medicine, you have to go through that process all over again. Mm-hmm. And that includes passing boards and specialty training and subspecialty training if that's what you choose to do. So that being said, going to the Caribbean doesn't necessarily facilitate that because there are tons of medical schools here and they produce tons of medical doctors each year. So it's a very competitive process if you don't go to medical school in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certain requirements, like I mentioned, that you have to meet. And if you do that, then maybe you're slightly as competitive as some other ones from like other graduates from here. Right. I read one of your blog posts where you mentioned how at the beginning you had some challenges with recognizing your degree. Can you please expand on that for the board exam? Yeah, yeah. So when you first come in, I think when I first came in, I had to get certification from a board called the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. Mm-hmm. And that is usually the first step into getting your credentials evaluated and converted over into a U.S. equivalent for medicine. Mm-hmm. So in that process, there's a lot of background work that needs to get done. You have to recollect all your credits from all the schools that you've attended. Right. And that, for us, sometimes going to Cameroon and trying to piece all of that together, (laughs) tying it in with the Caribbean, it can be very challenging. Very challenging, right. Yeah. And, you know, and then half the time you get it sent over here. It's not approved because it wasn't a particular envelope. It wasn't sealed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't done the proper way. But that's, for us, that's the way the system works. But for, for anyone evaluating here, it doesn't appear authentic enough. And so... You know, there were several steps along the way where I got my paperwork rejected and having to resubmit due to credibility or validity issues. I mean, it's just a pain in the in the rear end, honestly. Mm-hmm. But through all of that, after speaking with, you know, all the different institutions that were requiring verification, I eventually was able to uh, submit the required documentation in a manner that was considered acceptable. Right. So that helped me sort of overcome that particular portion of things. But it was indeed, it was a quite stressful process because trying to get a transcript evaluated from Cameroon to the States, I'm not sure what has happened here over the last few years because this was over 10 years ago. But at that time, it was quite hard. Mm -hmm. I had the same challenge because I remember when I was uh, trying to get some equivalence of my diploma from Cameroon. You don't have an online system or an email that you can reach out to and say, hey, can you please provide this transcript or that certification? There is basically no way you can do that. You have to have someone in Cameroon or you have to travel there to get them to do it. And you have to explain to them that you don't have to give them hard copy. You have to send it directly 
to the university or the uh, institution that is requesting it, and they say, "Who is paying for that?" So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty, it's a painful process, and I think mm-hmm. unless people experience it firsthand, they really don't understand it. Yeah, it's just like most everything else. Mm-hmm. So, would you encourage someone to go through the route? of the Caribbean to go to medical school there. Would you compare that to the same in the U.S.? So going to the Caribbean is certainly cheaper. Mm-hmm. So it's cost effective, especially if the person is paying in CFA, which was my case. My right. parents were paying out of pocket. So it was definitely a cheaper alternative than the state. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and I would not recommend for people to take that route because cheaper doesn't always mean you're going to achieve what you want to achieve out of life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen so many stories of people that have gone through the process of going to the Caribbean and um, paid significant amount, amount of money to pay tuition, but then could never pass the boards or could never, or maybe they pass the boards, but couldn't ever get a position for residency here in the States. Mm-hmm. So at that point, residencies, you know, are graduate medical education. That's sort of where we pick a specialty and focus on getting trained in that specialty. So because of the low rate of foreign medical students from the Caribbean getting into residency, for someone starting out, mm-hmm. I, that would not be my first recommendation for them to pursue, right? Right. I would probably say that should be a plan B because there's just it's getting more and more competitive. It's mm-hmm. getting more and more difficult. And unless you have a really healthy internal self-compass and are really dedicated to supplementing your education and supplementing your opportunities, you don't have as much guidance as you would if you went to school here in the States. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, or I would say fortunately, I guess for the quality of care, U.S. schools are very well vetted. And so by virtue of being in, in one of those schools, you already inherently learn a lot outside of, you know, the classroom. Right. And so it's a lot more of an easier opportunity, whether it's for networking, job placements and such, than it is for a person who is completely um, new to the system, such as a person that graduates from a foreign school. Mm-hmm. So how long were you in the, in the country, in that country, uh, the Netherlands Antilles? So I was there mid-2006 to 2009. Okay. And how was it yeah. like? Do they speak English there or is it French? So Curacao, it was a pretty nice place. Very beautiful, naturally beautiful. Tons of lovely beaches. I mean, blue water, just white sand. Very, very gorgeous. The languages now vary, but primarily all of the Netherlands entities are part of, or at that time they were part of the uh, the Dutch kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so Dutch was very widely spoken. But the locals had a traditional language, sort of like a dialect, right? Like what we would, you know, what you would expect to see in West Africa if you go to a certain area, mm-hmm. you'll find, you know, a unique dialect that's ideal or unique to that set of people. So they had theirs called Papiamento, which was sort of a merge between. It almost sounded to me like. French, English, Portuguese, all put together, <laughs> and Dutch. Right. And and um, it's only spoken in like the four or five islands that made up the Netherlands entities: Aruba, Bonaire, Curaçao, uh, Saint Eustatius. I believe there was one more. I can't think of it. But you know, those four islands, 
those are the only people that actually spoke Papiamento. Mm-hmm. And then because they're so close to with proximity to Central and South America, you have a lot of Spanish-speaking people. And so most people on the island speak at least three or four languages. Right. Because they could communicate in English, they can communicate in Dutch, they can communicate in Papiamento, mm-hmm. and they can communicate in Spanish. And that just tells you, you know, with their location, you know, they have a lot of a Dutch influence, a Dutch passports, influx of Dutch citizens in that area. You have South America, influx of uh, Spanish-speaking individuals. And then, you know, English, because it's with proximity to the States, about two hours, two to three hours from Miami. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the U.S. and Canada, North America being a huge influence, a lot of people learn English so they can, you know, whether for trade or economic reasons or just marketing and, and such. Okay. And then they had their local language, which kept them happy. <laughs> yeah that's funny and the official language and the one in uh, at the in school was it english yes yes my education was primarily in english mm-hmm. so how was the transition like from cameron to to that island again to me it was very exciting because mm-hmm. leaving cameroon to go there was a shot at my dreams right it was an, an opportunity to go and pursue medicine and it was my first time getting on a plane It's my first time leaving the country. Mm-hmm. It's my first time moving away from home, several thousand miles away from home. First time going to this beautiful island. And so it was very exciting at first, actually. Right. I did have maybe my first night, you know, you cry a little bit, but it was tears of joy. <laughs> and then you sort of get into the emotion and, and you keep going. And I had a very supportive family. I still do. And they were all, you know, rooting for my dreams. Everybody wanted to see me go to medical school. So it was whatever it took to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the transition was actually really nice. I mean, when I got there at first, I don't know. I don't think I had a whole lot of culture shock. I was just, I mean, everything fascinated me. I'm sort of the person that stays in wonder. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very curious and I'll just, okay, try to figure out what I could learn differently. I just felt like it was very different because when I when I left the country and I was going to Curacao, I wasn't expecting to see people of African descent. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. And so when I arrived the island and I realized, well, I look like some people there. I think that really helped me just sort of fit in really easily. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of because a lot of times people would think I was local anyways. Right. So it wasn't really there wasn't really room for culture shock. Um, and so that kind of warmed me up into coming into the States. Um, by the time I got here, I'd already learned about the system and through the people of Curacao, I felt very comfortable moving to a new place. So my transitions honestly were not the most exciting <laughs> compared to a lot of, you know, you'll hear a lot of other people had really exciting moving stories and right. this great sense of culture shock. And for me, it was just, it was just a really cool adventure. Mm-hmm. It seems like it sounds like mine because when I moved from Cameroon to South Africa, I was uh, there was a little bit of culture change because of the development in South Africa, but still I could you know I could fit in. People would see me and think that I am South African. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of familiar. Right. Yeah, that sense of familiarity mm-hmm. it goes a long way in just helping a person's perception of themselves by others if that makes any sense yeah it does so was it always your plan to be a doctor when you were a kid yes actually so my mom is a pediatrician and so i grew up in a house kind of watching her indirectly and you know i was very fascinated by the work that she did and 
just the influence that she had in her little community. So I thought, you know, that must be a very rewarding thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so that started off the interest. And then for a while, I kind of veered off the path and thought, oh, it's going to be a journalist. I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to be pretty on TV, like the women that I saw <laughs> reading the news. Right. And then, I, you know, then that was short-lived because it probably wasn't from a place of passion as much as I thought it was. It was more from a place of fame and popularity than anything else. Right. And so by the time I got back in my late teens, I thought, you know, this is probably, de medicine's definitely a calling for me. And I just had to answer the master's call at that mm -hmm. point. And how did you end up in Kentucky? Well, Kentucky chose me. <laughs> <laughs> so after moving to the States, I moved in as a third year medical student. Mm -hmm. And my school had this reciprocity where we participate in third and fourth year clinicals here in the States. And so um, I did my clinicals in the Chicago area. And when it came time to apply for specialization, which is what we call residency training, I um, applied to a few states. Mm -hmm. Kentucky was one of them. Right. And I interviewed in Kentucky and Michigan. And Kentucky was really nice to me when I came here. I mean, the people were very friendly, very welcoming. And it was one of the interviews where when you leave, you know you're going to get the job. Sort right. Of thing. And, and why not? So I... I ranked the program and they ranked me too. Mm -hmm. And so we matched because uh, we have to go through a match system. Right. Uh, an algorithm system to get into residency. So it worked out fairly well that I liked the program. They liked me and we matched one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never, I never left since then. I've been here since 2012. Wow. Finished, finished training, got my first job here in Laurel County, which is a fairly rural area. Mm -hmm. And I had to, after finishing training as a foreign or international student uh, on a J-1, you either have the opportunity of going back home to work for two years or staying in the States to work in an underserved area mm -hmm. for the same amount of time. Right. So I chose to stay and work, and that's why I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I also got a J-1 when I was traveling from South Africa to here to be a visiting faculty at the University of Iowa. But right. the, the two years requirement didn't apply to me. I mean, it was applicable based on the law. But after I did some research, I said, hey, apparently it doesn't apply to me. And then I applied for a waiver. So it looks like one of the waiver requirements is also working in the rural area. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So for, for myself, the waiver requirement is to work in a rural area for two years. Actually, mine was a three-year requirement. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. good to know. That's good. So how was it like uh, moving from, you know, Chicago, Maryland, or Curacao and Douala to being in London, Kentucky? You know, like I've said, every move has always been exciting because right. beyond the move, there was always something better mm -hmm. on the other side of it. At least in my head, there was. So moving to London to me wasn't about moving to a smaller area. It was more so moving to a place where I get to finally practice right. as a fully board-certified physician. So that was exciting. You know, that part is it's sort of like, you know, when, you t when you're running a race and you get to the finish line mm -hmm. and you just break past the ribbon, right. um, that feeling of elation, that's really what I felt moving to London. Okay. Um, but in retrospect, I guess looking from the outside in, mm -hmm. I can see how it may per it may be perceived as 
not a very exciting opportunity, but given my circumstances and given everything else that surrounded my life journey this far, it's mm-hmm. probably one of the best things that happened to me. Oh, wow. That's so amazing. That's good. So I, I want to go back to all the things that you do. And to be honest, I'm very happy that there's someone out there with all the information that you share and including the training that can give all the material to uh, the people who are interested in becoming doctors. So earlier I asked you how and where do you find the time to do all that? I, I want to ask that question again. Like your, <laughs> your, your blog is very active. I see a lot of posts. Like what is it like? Do you write when you're at work or during weekends or at night? <laughs> That's a good question. I write everywhere. I write on the commode. I write <laughs> I write everywhere that you could possibly write. And I use my phone a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I really I type a lot into my notes right. uh, section on my phone. I have WordPress on my phone, so I usually type into the app as mm-hmm. well sometimes so I can get into my dashboard. You know, I live, like I said, the advantage of living in an area where there's very little distraction, such as, you know, the the buzz of the big city and activities right. every weekend. The advantage of living in a rural area is, you know, it's quiet, it's calm. You can get to pursue things that are within you mm-hmm. because there's not a lot else outside to go look for. Right. And so it it just creates to where when I'm not working... I don't really watch TV, honestly. So when I'm not working, I could be working on one of my other goals mm-hmm. and one of my other aspirations. So I really don't get a whole lot of time. To me, relaxing on my couch is figuring out something cool that I could be a part of. Right. And provided it's going to help somebody and get a good word out there to encourage another person, then yes, I, that's relaxing for me. And the books, the books that you, the upcoming book, uh, the one coming, uh, what is the Beyond the Challenge? Beyond Challenge, Beyond, yeah, Beyond Challenge. Challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is, it's really a passion project. There's 15 of us, all physicians, all from Cameroon, mm-hmm. with one type of immigrant story or the other. Right. And we really kind of peel back, you know, those hard experiences that, a lot of immigrants shy from sharing, especially those who end up in a very professional, highly respected career like medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, you know, from the outside looking in, the general public perceives, oh, you're fine. You make good money. You don't have any problems. <laughs> right. Um, but it's not always the case. And so, you know, by being vulnerable and sharing key items, key points in our lives that could have broken us, uh, but we were able to persist and persevere now we're putting that in writing and sort of sharing that back to the world say hey look beyond the curtain see beyond just what you see on the outside that Mm -hmm. facade or or now the md degree and everything else that comes with that right and we want to show you really what it took for for you to see this finished product here's what he or here's what she had to experience and so in sharing our stories, we hope to inspire and motivate other people like us. Right. But even people that just want to know, people that are just interested, because information is key. Mm-hmm. Everybody just wants to know. I mean, sometimes you don't have to share in the experience of being an immigrant, but you may just be interested in knowing what it may feel like. Yes. So it's a great book to entertain. It's a great book for younger people, younger students that are 
um, international students or even non-international who just want to uh, be able to fight a challenge or a difficult season of their lives. Mm -hmm. They can draw a lot of inspiration and motivation on tips and tricks and tools that they can apply from our stories to help them overcome that. And uh, the book also talks about personal relationships. It shows that you doctors also have a life to live, right? Right, right, right. It it has a, a central focus on that. My chapter actually, which is titled From Rejection to Resilience, really touches on, you know, just the multiple rejections that I experienced, maybe whether it was through medical school admissions and getting rejected time and time over again, mm-hmm. and then moving into dealing with rejection within a relationship. Right. And how all those, you know, those two types of rejection intersected with one another and had basically changed my outlook on life mm-hmm. and how I was able to resolve that within myself undergo some self-improvement you know to be able to overcome it and now it's made me a whole lot more resilient individual than i would have ever imagined right so you know that's another part of the book and there are several other women that have several stories that resonate with that theme in one way or the other Mm -hmm. that's that's so 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 interesting so i've gone through your blog post because you know as i was preparing for this conversation i wanted to get to know more about you and then to learn more about the stories that you have posted on the on the blog. And one blog was the 29 advice that you would give to your young self, including about love and relationship, relationship with God, and about life. If you were to summarize those for our audience, what would you say is the advice you give to your young self? Wow. It's going to be hard to summarize, which is why I wrote a whole, <laughs> I wrote a whole blog post on it. Right. It's a long one. It's a long yeah, post. Yeah, it's pretty long. I would say the key point is, you know, you have to connect with your inner self. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what you want out of life. And you have to be very, very specific because life is tricky. If you don't tell it what you want, you're going to get whatever you get. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we tend to live a passive life, just sort of letting things happen to us mm-hmm. instead of actually being the ones determining what happens to us. And once you realize the power that you have, that really helps you live a more fulfilled life. Right. On the matter of faith, uh, you need to find a spiritual routine that helps you stay connected and centered. For me, that is maintaining a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Mm-hmm. But for other people, it's different. You know, they have different things that they identify with. But I, I believe to have a more centered and more harmonious life, it has to be focused on something that's not yourself. Right. And for love, I would say never pass it by. I mean, you just never know when it's going to come knocking down your door. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do a lot of things at once. I think as a younger lady, I thought I had to be a career person first and then be a family person later. Right. <laughs> and then be a uh, retiree and then, you know, finally live my life. Mm-hmm. But that, now I realize, no, 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 that's not how it happened. You can be a career person, a family person, enjoy your life, and still have a good retirement life later on. And you can be doing all those things at once. Right. So that's those, that would be the best way that I would uh, summarize that article. Thank you. Thank you. That's actually covering all the aspects because, you know, some of the points were interconnected and the summary is great, actually. I do encourage people to go and have a look at that article. And I will be sharing that as well. So was it always your plan to to live and work abroad? Or is it something that happened organically due to circumstances? I think think it was an organic 
process because mm-hmm. I actually had no intentions of living and working abroad. My intention was to go back to Cameroon to work. And I'm still young, so who knows? <laughs> but that was always my primary intention was to move back home and practice medicine with my mother. And mm-hmm. so I, I think things just unfolded in a different way and bigger, better opportunities came by. And I would be stupid to have passed those, let those pass me by. Right. And it gets you, you get experience, right? Exposure to other aspects of life and people. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Just so many opportunities that I would not get if I just immediately went home. And, you know, these are opportunities that sort of came to me. And you just don't say no to a great opportunity that you don't have to. I mean, you have to fight and work hard for it. But once it's once the door is open, it's yours. It's, you just have to walk through it. Right, right. So, Yeah. And then... Uh, what would you say is the most rewarding aspect of your work today? I think the most rewarding part is certainly when I see a person that I care for mm-hmm. go from, you know, what we call in the hospitals, dirt sick, you know, when someone's floridly ill mm-hmm. to being well and being able to walk out of the hospital. You know, that's that's something that really brings me so much joy when I run into my patients out of the hospital and they're carrying on with their usual lives. And that was someone that maybe was in, in dire state when I took care of them. So mm-hmm. that change is, uh, being a, being an agent of change is, is really important to me. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. So the other aspect of your profession, of course, is you being a mentor to many other younger students who are interested in going to medical school. What is rewarding in that aspect of your work? So the most rewarding part is... Doing for these students what I wish someone did for me, because hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and now I know better, and I think it's completely useless to know better and just sit on that information. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah, so <laughs> I I think the best way I can use that information is if someone else benefits from it. Then mm-hmm. at least I don't have to sit on it. Right, right. And that's what mentorship and coaching does for me is. I'm able to take what I've learned and help another person. And it's worked. Mm-hmm. And, and when it works once, you're like, oh, my God, I actually have some information that's beneficial for a person. Yeah. I can't, I can't just sit around and not use it. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so true. I, I really appreciate you saying that with some great quoting there because uh, you don't want to have information and sit on it, especially when you know you can have other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one question that we ask our guests is uh, how do you define success and uh, do you consider yourself uh, successful today? Uh, success to me is achieving or walking in your purpose. Mm-hmm. I think success is a continuum. You know, I don't think there's a peak where you just get there and then there's nothing else beyond that. Right. You know, because success sort of fluctuates and it's something that should be defined by the individual. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the misnomer in success nowadays is we allow the people to label what, what is success for us. Right. And then that makes it to where it becomes a variable that you can never attain. Because maybe today your mom doesn't think you're successful, tomorrow she thinks you're successful. So it's like, you know, yin yang. It's like one day you're successful, the next day you're not. Mm-hmm. Whereas it is a continuum. So, yes, I am successful, but I know that this is just the beginning of my success. And mm-hmm. there'll be a lot more beyond today because it's a growing process amen and really for there to be success is failure so 
anticipate that as well mm-hmm. to be able to make the next success and the next success. But it is a continuum. It is a continuum. And then uh, you want to also take with two hands all the small successes that you receive, right? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Very, be very thankful and grateful for every stage of life mm-hmm. and every circumstance because what you have is truly very valuable if you stay focused on that. Okay. And then uh, one, I know you're a very religious person, which I very I respect a lot. What's your relationship with God like and how does that impact on your profession and everything that you do to help other people? I would say the reason I do everything else is because I have that foundation in a personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And all these different parts of me that you see, and you asked me earlier how I do all the things I do, I really think it's God-fueled, because if it wasn't, I wouldn't be able to do it. Right. And so I believe that our call as Christians is to really be a light in our world. I mean, there's so many ways to be a light, and I'm just sort of holding my own light and trying to figure out the way right. one day at a time. Well, thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? I, I think you have a really great show, Henri. Thanks for creating this platform. Oh, thank you. I know that it's helping a lot of us mm-hmm. that are people that have migrated miles and miles and miles away from places that are that we're, we're home and now we're having to make new homes in other places. And sometimes we may miss out on a sense of community and I think you're doing that right here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening today. This was our final episode this season, so we have some special thank yous. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hassan, Adijo K. Babington, Ashai, Kwame Christian, Alexei Morosov, Mark Schneider, Boo Windy, Marisol Aguilar, Alida Rabalinda, Michelle Senville, Paola Tineo, and Nina Lum. Really appreciate you supporting us this season. We'll be back later this fall with a brand new episode. To listen to our previous episodes, please visit us at dashboard.co. Again, that's dashboard.co. If you would like to share your story with us, please contact us at dashboard2019 at gmail.com. As you know, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform where you listen to podcasts. Daspo is produced by Henri and Laura Cuepo. Thanks again for your support. Please stay tuned for our next season. Thank you.